Well, I trust you found this series, Faulty People, Faultless Saviour, helpful. Isn't it fascinating looking at how Jesus deals with broken people, faulty people, with our brokenness, with our misunderstandings, with our arrogance, with our stubbornness. Today, we come to the final person in our series, and we're looking at the one who had the longest possible encounter with Jesus on earth. We're looking at Mary, his biological mother, who was with him from the moment he took his first breath on earth to when he took his last and beyond. Now, I'm sorry it is just not possible to look at every moment that Mary is mentioned in, in the Bible. So I apologize now if I leave out your favorite bit. It's been some tough choosing as I've prepared this. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn quickly to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. And although this is possibly going to feel a little bit more like Christmas than heading into Easter, this passage is a gift for all seasons. So Mary is a young girl from humble country roots. She's from an obscure, not particularly respected, Galilean village. She's betrothed to be married to Joseph. She's a virgin. So given the customs of the time, she's probably around 12 to 14 years old. The uh, bride price has been paid, and this year of betrothal is only broken by divorce. Now, if all of this is very familiar to you, please listen with fresh ears and be shocked by what the Lord God is going to ask of her and then be shocked by her humble, faithful, brave response. So the angel went to Mary and he didn't say, greetings, you who are highly talented. He didn't say, greetings, you who topped the mothering the Messiah class. He didn't say, Greetings, you who are rich in everything that the world values. No. The angel said in verse 28, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And curiously, it appears that it's this greeting that troubles her more than even having an angel appear to her. If you look at verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And then the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule, reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The next crucial step in God's immense plan of salvation for humanity is being revealed to this young girl, Mary, from the backwaters. How does she respond to hearing this extraordinary news? Well, first she gets a little stuck in the practical. Um, how can this be? I'm a virgin. But the Lord God in his creative wisdom will take care of that. 
She is to provide the human element so God the Son can come in human form. And with the practicality sorted, Mary, in verse 38, says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I am the Lord's servant. Simple, humble words coming from someone who had no idea what was coming. She is a faithful Jewish girl who's been waiting for the promised Messiah, the one who is coming to restore Israel to, his, to its former glory. She would have considered the one chosen to be the mother of the Messiah a great honour. She would, however, have been acutely aware of what Joseph was going to think. She knew she would come in for some suspicion and some ridicule. And it could have cost her a lot more than her reputation. Joseph was in his rights to divorce her or worse. What she possibly couldn't possibly have um, um, considered was that the ridicule would last for over 2,000 years. Even now. Virgin birth. Yeah, right. Her humility in receiving this news is matched by her bravery. We know how this story ends. She's living the story as it unfolds. And being assured that the Lord is with her, I am the Lord's servant. What abilities were on Mary's CV? Availability, humility, faithfulness, perfect ingredients for the Lord to work with. Now fast forward to the birth of Jesus when perhaps Mary might have been expecting something a little more royal for her son's birth but God doesn't care about pretensions. He knew that his son was coming for all people and the choice of his birthplace was indicative of this. There was nothing remotely glamorous about Jesus' birth no matter how much glitter they put in the Christmas nativity snow domes that was for sale at Christmas at the malls last, last year, nothing glamorous. I wonder how many times Mary said, I am the Lord's servant, as she walked to Bethlehem or on the donkey, as they couldn't find a place to stay, as she gave birth in those humble surroundings, as they placed the baby in an animal feeding trough. This wasn't normal. Nor was having some shepherds pop in to meet the baby. Shepherds who had just been visited by an angel. May I read you a gem from Leon Morris's commentary? Shepherds generally had a bad reputation. The nature of their work kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. More regrettable, however was their unfortunate habit of confusing thine with mine as they moved about the country. But since when did having a bad reputation bother God? Our God delights in taking the discarded and making them crucial, in lifting up the lowly, in remembering the forgotten, in giving significance to the insignificant. 
And God gives these outliers, these shepherds, a life-changing evening. We read that Mary pondered in her heart all that the shepherds had told her that the angel said. And of course she did. She's trying to work out how to walk this walk. Mary and Joseph did what every faithful Jewish couple did. They fulfilled the religious duties for a firstborn male. And it was at one of these um, in the temple that they met the, the man called Simeon. He was a faithful man who had been assured by the Spirit that he wasn't going to die until he had seen the Messiah. As Mary and Joseph walked to the temple that morning, I'm sure that people were, oh, look, isn't he gorgeous? Not because he was, but that's what we say about all newborns. Oh, he's got your nose. But when Simeon saw the baby Jesus, he took him in his arms and praised God, saying, now I have seen your plan of salvation. I can die a happy man. And then he says, but this is going to cause division. This baby is going to be a stumbling block. And then he said those words to Mary, and a sword will pierce your soul too. How would Mary have reacted? I am the Lord's servant. Holding on to God the Son as she was holding on to God the Father's promise to her. After this, we hear nothing more of Jesus' infancy. We assume that Mary did what every Jewish mother did, not only the feeding and the cleaning and teaching him to tie his sandals, but she also had the honour of teaching him the truths about God. Isn't that a neat thought? Mary teaching her son all she knows about their Heavenly Father. Imagine those conversations. Imagine the prayer times at bedtime. All of this was done, by the way, while she was raising the, the other children that she had with Joseph. Because Matthew and Mark both tell us that Jesus had four other brothers and two, at least two sisters. Well, our next stop on the Whirlwind Mary tour is the account of Jesus being left behind after his faithful family made their annual trip to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Jesus would have, was 12 years old. He is on the cusp of adulthood. And with these great traveling parties, it was very common for the younger children to travel with the mother and the older boys to travel with the father. So it's not unexpected that as they left, Mary assumed that Jesus was with Joseph and Joseph assumed that Jesus was with Mary. And they traveled for a whole day before they realized that Jesus wasn't with either of them. Can we just have a moment to think how Mary and Joseph felt. We've lost the Messiah. It's not a good look. The panic that every parent feels as they've misplaced a child must have been so much more acute. It was three days before they found him again in the temple back in Jerusalem. And then there's that outpouring of that strange combination of incredible relief and love and joy and frustration and anger that comes out in Mary's very human son. Why have you treated us like this? We've been worried sick. 
That's a modern translation. But Jesus quietly reassures them. He, he knew where he was. He was in the temple, taking the opportunity to learn from the great scholars of the big city. He was in his father's house, totally engrossed in the conversations. Mary treasured all these things up in her heart again, trying to work out how to mother the Messiah. The scene ends with Jesus went down to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and was obedient to them. This is the last we hear of Joseph. So sometime in the next 18 years, it looks like he dies and Mary is a single parent. During this time, Jesus would have been learning and earning from the family trade of carpentry, but also he would have been learning more about who he was. When he was 30, he was of the age when rabbis could begin their public ministry. When Jesus was 30, he knew certainly who he was and most definitely what he came to do. Jesus understood his mission. And our next encounter with Mary is the New Testament passage that we read, the wedding at Cana. And many people totally unfamiliar with the Bible will know that there's something somewhere about Jesus turning water to wine. It's a very, very well-known passage. But this is so much more than a clever catering solve. It was the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed and it was deeply symbolic. John is the only gospel writer to record this event. And just as an aside, John never calls Mary, Mary. He always calls her the mother of Jesus. Likewise, he never calls himself John. He is the disciple who Jesus loves. So both of them he describes in their relationship to Jesus. I don't think that's for nothing. Their identity is who they are in relation to Jesus. What's our primary identity? Just let's tuck that one away. John places Mary front and center at the beginning of the story, possibly because it's a wedding of one of her relatives. All her family are there as are Jesus' newly appointed disciples. And as the horror story goes, the wine runs out. Now in our day, that would, be, that would be awkward and you'd certainly come in for a bit of ribbing. But in a culture that prized hospitality, this was unthinkable. It was a mortifying occurrence. It would have caused deep shame, if not a fine. And it would have had a cloud over that married couple for years to come. Mary knew that. And so she goes to Jesus. She goes to Jesus possibly because she's in the habit of going to Jesus. And why wouldn't you? She was, his old, she was her oldest son. And he would have been terribly helpful and kind and pragmatic. And he would have always come up with the best solution. But in this instance, he says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. There's been much written about whether this woman is as rude uh, as it sounds to our ears 
or perhaps it's a term of respect. Either way, we're right to notice that Jesus doesn't call her mum or mother, and Mary would have felt that. Hmm. What may have felt like a reproach to Mary is actually Jesus now inviting her in to a new relationship with him. Jesus is inviting her in to something deeper than being his earthly mother. I am the Lord's servant. Mary says to the servants, well, do whatever he tells you. Now, I would love to see the video replay of this particular moment because I would love to know whether it's I'll do whatever he tells you, he's a good boy, he'll do what mama wants, or do whatever he tells you. I have no idea what the plan is, but trust him. I lean to the latter. Mary took the problem to Jesus, left it with him, and she's now out of the picture. Jesus takes over. Jesus would never have displayed his supernatural power because someone asked him to or because it was going to make someone happy. He would only ever have done what was right for God's purposes and in God's timing. And clearly this is both of those. And he acted in God's timing. He turns this catering catastrophe into a perfect teaching moment. Jesus is announcing a new way of doing things. The old ways, symbolized by the giant ceremonial washing jars, is going to be replaced by the abundant and overflowing mercy of God as seen by the wine, symbolized by the wine. The frequent inadequate cleansing rituals required by Jewish law are going to be replaced by complete cleansing forgiveness. Jesus is ushering in this new way. He will challenge the joyless burden of the old ways and offer joy-filled life to the full. Ordinary to extraordinary. This also highlights that Jesus would no longer be following his mother's promptings. He has a higher authority and it is now his heavenly father's agenda alone that he will be following. Mary would be looking at a new relationship with Jesus. Her elder son just pulling away from her a bit. Is that a little bit of a sword in her soul? I am the Lord's servant. Jesus calling Mary woman in this account is the first hint of something that he will make quite plain. Matthew, Mark and Luke all record the time when Mary and his brothers were getting very concerned that his ministry was taking over. I suspect Mary was concerned that he wasn't eating enough, he wasn't sleeping enough, that he's burning the candle at both ends. That was my mother's favourite expression. And so they came to him when he was surrounded by yet another crowd. They came to rescue him from another crowd. And someone from inside said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you. And Jesus, looking at the crowd of people he was with, said, here are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father is my brother, my sister, 
my mother. What might feel like a reproach to his biological family is actually an invitation to them to join his even more important eternal family. Again, when a random woman in the crowd calls out to Jesus, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you, Jesus says, mm, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. For Jesus, Mary was blessed not so much because she was his mother, but because she heard the word of God and obeyed it. Blessed. What on earth does that mean? Blessed. Mary was called blessed twice by a spirit-inspired Elizabeth in a passage that we didn't read. Mary knew that she was going to be considered blessed by all generations. But what does the blessed life look like? I'm going to take a punt and suggest that when we think blessed life, there's deck chairs and a cool breeze, Hawaiian holidays, that kind of thing. There's a comfort and an ease to our understanding of the blessed life, but this is a long way from the biblical reality. To Jesus, the blessed life is the obedient life, lived in the confident assurance that God is in control, that we are his servants. Is there deep joy coming for you this week? Then, then in gratitude and in practice, say, I am the Lord's servant. Is there a tough week coming for you? I am the Lord's servant as we hold on to his promise that he is with us. Mary's blessed life led her to our final stop. And I cannot imagine a more gut-wrenching scenario for any mother than to watch an innocent son strung up on a cross. Powerless to help, doubting everything that she had thought. Wasn't he the Messiah? Didn't the angel say that he, he would rule forever? Son of the Most High? I am the Lord's servant, I suspect through tears. From the cross, Jesus addresses her. Jesus uses some of his last breaths to address his mother. I'm going to say that again. Jesus uses some of his last earthly breaths to address the one who was with him when he took his first earthly breath. I'm thinking he would have got out about a word per breath, agony. Mother, here is your son. And to the disciple he loved, here is your mother. With Jesus' dying breaths, he was making provision for his, what remains of his mother's earthly life. From that time on, John took Mary into his home. But with Jesus' death, he is making provision for her eternal life. He was pouring himself out on that cross 
for Mary, for me, for us all. This had to happen for that complete whole cleansing that was hinted at in the water to wine account. Forgiveness for all who look to Jesus on the cross and say, you are my Lord, you are my saviour. At the foot of the cross, we are all equal, faulty, broken. It doesn't matter who we've given birth to or who gave birth to us. It doesn't matter whether we have a reputation, brilliant or otherwise. What matters is our relationship to Jesus. At the foot of the cross, those who acknowledge Jesus as saviour are the family of God. Because of his bloodshed, we can be forgiven and welcomed into part of his eternal family. Jesus' bloodline. We can take our place on Jesus' family tree along with Mary. The family motto, I am the Lord's servant. It takes a humble heart to be able to say those words in all circumstances. May those words of Mary shape our relationship with Jesus. This week, may we be available, faithful and humble to be useful in his purposes. And may we know the truly blessed life of trust and obedience in the Lord Jesus, our faultless Saviour.